I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to Daydream Believers with L and L. L. How the hell are ya? I'm well. I'm very, very well. That's good. Yes, it's good. It's good. I know it's a little bit of something different. What is it? Your glasses. Yes, I have glasses now. Mm-hmm. I noticed that about a year ago, I should have probably gotten this checked out a year ago, but I noticed a year ago that when I was driving, my eyes would actually start hurting. Oh, the actual balls of Yeah, the, the eyes, balls yeah. of my eyes, yeah. And then I'm like, this isn't right. Mm. This isn't right. And then I noticed as time went on that especially as I was driving, that's where I would notice it the most, I would start to have to like like focus. Oh, yeah. Overly focus. So I'm like, okay, this is not right. And then as I started noticing it happen when I was looking at my phone, I was like, okay, I, I need to do something about this. I need to do this. Yes, I need to go get my eyes checked. Isn't it funny when the eyes go like a little bit fuzzy and you realize like you go from like having really, really good vision to being like, hmm, mm. why am I straining all the yes, time? Yes, I'm straining all the time and getting consistent headaches. Yeah. So here I am with my glasses. I love that. I have really. glasses. They suit you really well. It feels like you've always had them. To be honest, when I first wore them, I hated them. Mm. And I'm like, great, now I look like I'm 50 years old. Now, I've told you before, you don't look like you're 50. You look like you look like a little bit of a porn star. <laughs> what are you talking about? What a disgraceful thing to say. You just look like it actually makes you quite sexy. I think you look sexy. You think I look sexy? Yes. Sexy. Sexy. Do I ooze sex appeal? Yes. (laughs) Just like Kevin Bacon, you do (laughs) ooze sex appeal. 
Oh my lord, El, thank you. You've never said that I was sexy before. I don't usually use that word, to be honest. It's usually you that uses that word. But I love using the word sexy. Yeah. See, you know when you're in high school and everyone Mm -hmm. used to say hot and sexy all the time, and like they'd comment on a phobia like hot, sexy. I always got cute, and I remember feeling like that was such an (laughs) insult. Like I'm like, why can I not be hot? Why can I not be sexy? Oh, so cute. Yeah. Like that. Nah, I think people just thought I was cute because. Come on. Oh, but, I thought you would say to other people, oh, you're so cute. No, people would say it to me. And I like, I would never get the sexy or hot comment. Oh, or like, did I? Yeah. Or like if boys would talk to me, they'd be like, oh, you're so cute, Elle. And I'd be yeah. like, <sighs> I'd get your eyes are big. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like guys are, <laughs> you have really big, big really big eyes. Okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> not my eyes you're looking at. <laughs> oh, what is it? What? What I was quoting Will and Grace. You know what? Karen's like, she's like, that's not my soul you're looking at. <laughs> He's like, you have a beautiful soul. <laughs> oh, oh my god! I thought you were referring to my breasts. That's what I was meaning, but from the Karen episode. <laughs> All right. Yes. Okay. Glad we got through that confusion. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the glasses. I think they look really, Thank really you. snazzy. I appreciate that. Um, I meant to wear my glasses a lot more than I do, but I never wear them. Why is that? They annoy my face. <laughs> in what way? As in I they feel like heavy they, on the face? Yeah, and I've tried all the different types of glasses. Like, I've tried the ones with the little rubbery things. They mm. are frustrating. No, I, I don't like those. And then I've tried, the, like, the ones you're wearing now where they're a bit more bigger framed. And I do like wearing them, like, occasionally, mm. but... I'll wear them when I need to. Like, I'll wear them when I drive at night time and I'll mm. wear them when I use a computer to, for a lot of the time. But after I quit full-time work and I wasn't, usually, like, using three screens at once all the time, I've, mm. like, sort of dropped it off. But I do need to go to the optometrist. I keep getting those alerts. Uh, like, yes. check me, check me check out. Check me, check me. Uh, see, I have to wear them full-time. I'm not going to go to the point where I need, lens, like, contact lenses to wear them to go out or something if I don't want to wear my glasses. Yeah. Because... It's actually not my eye that's the problem. Mm-hmm. It's the muscles around my eye. Yeah. Apparently, it's a very common thing to happen to people now because we all use so much technology. And the problem was is that your eyes are meant to be facing forward, mm-hmm. right? But because we're constantly looking at our phones, we're at a laptop, at screens, our eyesight goes in. It's like a diagonal. It's yeah, like, like tunnel vision. In wood, yeah. That's right. So it creates the muscles around the eye to be extremely fatigued. And that is what's causing me for my vision to not be in in focus. So my my muscles around my eye are overly fatigued. I can believe that. I feel like I feel that feeling a lot of the time. Yeah, I think that's why my eyes hurt so much. Yeah, I was getting a lot of eye pain Mm. when I used to use, like, a lot of screens. And you edit a lot more than me, so, like, you're always, like, I'm always on the laptop laptop or or on my phone, Yeah, right? So they said full-time for about 12 months, and then they said hopefully – that by the end of that 12 months, I'm going to notice that I don't need to really wear my glasses anymore. That's really good. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that too because I know that everyone has that kind of like, there's that like, not a rumor, but it's like a like a little fib, I think, where people like, once you wear glasses, you're going to always have to rely on those glasses. And yeah. I don't think that's necessarily true. No. But I, I'm excited to see. Mm. I'm excited to see. I remember I was having eye pain as well quite a bit and I've gone to ophthalmologist a few times as well, but... I remember I went and they had to check behind my eye and they gave me these little eye drops. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was okay. And she was like, the, I was in a shopping center, like at the original check, and she was like, okay, like I'm going to put these eye drops in to dilate your eye or dilate, what's that word when they go big? Dilate? Yeah, dilate your <laughs> eye. 
And she's like, you can just go for a walk around the shopping center for like five, 10 minutes. Um, and once you notice them sort of kicking in the, like your eyes will start to feel a little bit blurry kind of. Right. Like then come back. I'm like, okay. I'm like, hmm, I'm surely I have to. Yeah, but how does she expect you to walk back? Yeah. I think she expected me to walk back like as soon as I noticed something uh. different. But I decided to go to my favorite Kransky place that was in that shopping center. Yeah. Uh, which is no longer there anymore. I can talk about that in another time. It really hurt my soul. Um, <laughs> But so I was like, okay, I have time for a Kransky. Like, that would be fun. So I went and got my Kransky. And I remember taking a bite of it, looking at my Kransky, taking a bite of it, and then looking up and not being able to see. <laughs> like, suddenly it just hit all at once. And I was like, ooh. Like, it must have been kicking in early and yeah. I was just getting distracted Were you by with this. someone? No, I was by myself. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> so I was like, hey. And everything was just a blur. And I'm like, like I could only feel the crazy. I was like still trying to eat it, and luckily I was sitting down at the time, so I was like, okay, that's not too bad. But I was on like a, it was like a little bar bench right. that you're sitting on, so I had to try and maneuver down the stool, and then find my way back to the optometrist. And it was, it, I looked like little blind mice. I was like so slow, <laughs> step by step. And I want to say this hasn't happened again, but it has. <laughs> You didn't learn the first I time. I didn't learn the first time. Oh, yeah. yeah, and then, it, yeah, I needed someone to come pick me up. I shouldn't have drove that day. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was not fun. My butt is clenching like I need to take a dump right this instant. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I like, you not. can't control it? I have no control. I always wait till the last minute. Um... <laughs> and you say I'm the one that brings up the shit all the time. I know. And you say it's me. Well, I've learnt my lesson. I'll just wait until you learn yours. I know. It's going to hit me at the Jerry Seinfeld conference <laughs> yes. this year. Um, yes. Yeah, so I was like a little blind mice walking back to the thing. Finally got there. Turns out there was a bit of swelling behind my eye, but it was all right. I was like, yeah. your butt. No. <laughs> Probably there too, bloody hemorrhoids. Oh. <laughs> You're revealing a lot about yourself. I know. In such small, do- small doses. I like Kransky's. <laughs> Cheese Kransky's only. Yes, and hemorrhoids. And hemorrhoids. And I probably get them because <laughs> of the crappy foods I eat and the strain I must go oh through. Oh, my God. Mm. Right. Where did I go here? I don't know. I'm sorry for the over-explaining and oversharing, which I'm also going to be sorry for the oversharing I did throughout this episode. <laughs> oh, my God. Speaking of throughout the episode, mm-hmm. shall we talk about our guest today? Oh, can we please? I'm so excited. Our guest name is Steph, and she's a clinical psychologist. She has an online presence at the name of Mind Food Steph. She talks a lot about mental health disorders, um, specifically ADHD quite a bit, and I notice a few BPD and bipolar content Mm, as well. mm -hmm. But she talks a lot around eating disorders and binge eating, which I find very, very interesting. Mm. and it's very binge eating can be very linked to ADHD. So having both is very – I really enjoy her content. She really opened my eyes to who I am. Mm-hmm. But she was she's extremely helpful. For someone who is not my psychologist, yes. she really – like, she could see me. Yeah, she, she could really you. see me, I, know. I felt like. I felt that way too. Yeah. I found that um, throughout this chat – and you guys will get to hear it in a moment – but throughout this chat – she really just 
brings so much light and energy and it's exactly how you want psychologists to be when you're looking for a psychologist there's some people that will be very clinical about it and have a very clinical approach and we've interviewed people like that before as well and that's great in its Mm. own way but her energy and the the way she is excited to learn about the things as she goes the way that she's excited to help someone through something and and provide that information through her content as well in such a loving and caring way and a way that easy to digest it's not so easy yeah so easy she really does break it down for you yeah but for now let's get to the episode Mm -hmm. we'll be right back with steph Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here with L times two. We've got the heater on because we're freezing and we're in Melbourne at the moment. So yes, <laughs> I was going to say yeah. you two are in your hoodies. Yes. And I know, we're like, all rugged up. Summer is in two weeks, and we're in hoodies. <laughs> Although two days ago I was like sweating, melting, yeah, melting. But that's, two days that's ago Melbourne we were in shorts. You. Now we're in hoodies. I yeah. wasn't shorts. I've missed my good shorts old Melbourne. Now. Good oh. old Melbourne. Unpredictable. Okay, Steph, so we would love to know what brought you to this career choice. Yeah, yeah. like a little bit about you yeah. why you chose this sure, field of yeah. psychology as well. I was very certain in high school. I had a psychology teacher I really liked. And when I was learning the subject, I thought, wow, I want to be a clinical psychologist. That's my dream. I want to help people. That's what I wanted to do. So I enjoyed the subject in high school, but more so than that, I went through my own eating disorder struggle. And back then it was very secret. No one spoke about it. Dieting was very mainstream. It was very normal. I mean, you're both Greek. You must know what it's like growing up in a Greek Greek household. It is all about food, but also my mum was chronically dieting and buying, you know, low fat, low sugar. And this was when everyone on the Today Show was like, this new diet and, you know, this new low fat. And it was so normalized. So I grew up just thinking, oh, losing weight is a hobby that everybody should be doing. If I think back to my childhood, my mum was always like, oh, I'm trying to lose, I'm trying to lose weight. I don't think she ever not said that in my entire life. Yeah, same here, actually. Good point. Mm. Yeah. And I think many people listening to this will think about it and relate because it was so normal back then. It was so common. But it influences how you think and your perception of the world and what you think you need to do with your own body. So, yeah, I went on this journey, thought I needed to lose weight, and then obviously any type of restriction restraint leads to binge eating, and then I just went on this massive binge eating disorder, bulimia, and because it was never that bad, I never really thought it was a problem. I called it seasonal eating disorder. I just thought it would come and go. Uh, but then it yeah, progressively got worse as it does. And I thought to myself, I need to fix this. How am I going to be a psychologist when I'm the one who needs therapy? You know, so yeah, I did. I recovered and I thought I need to help people with this. And that's why I got into this line of work. Was there a moment that uh, sticks out to you now that helped you jerried on that you need to change your behavior? Yes. So I used to have a pole dancing studio for fitness. Oh, that's awesome. I know. Yeah, back in Melbourne. So while I was studying full time, I was working as a receptionist in a popular pole dancing studio in Melbourne. And I ended up buying a franchise and running it. I loved business. I loved women's fitness. I loved all that. And when you're going through an eating disorder, it's a very disconnected experience. You're not fully present. I remember my mum, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd be so tired because you get this hangover. Like if you've, oh, trigger warning, we're going to be talking about graphic 
information. So just anyone listening to this who may want to pause or take a breath, I'll be getting a bit graphic. So (laughs) that's okay. So with bulimia, that's obviously an eating disorder where you have episodes of binge eating and then you overcompensate. So you may force yourself to purge, vomit, take laxatives, etc. So for me, it was purging and going through that, it's almost like waking up with a hangover. You're so tired. Your electrolytes are everywhere. You just, you feel crap. And I remember my mom saying to me like, what's wrong? What's wrong? The the spark has gone from your eyes. And she had no, like, she didn't know. And I just, oh, I'm just tired. I'm just tired. And I was running the pole studio. And then one day I was got driving home from work. Now I used to teach six hours a day. I teach three classes in the morning and I teach three classes in the evening and the last class would finish at 9.30. And I was driving home and I see something from the corner of my eye in the car next to me. And I'm like, oh, it's just a guy trying to get my attention or something like that. So I just, I didn't look. And then this guy's like waving and I was like, what? And he's like, you're on the wrong side of the road. <gasps> get yeah. the fuck And out. I was like, what? And I look forward and there's like, four rows of cars coming towards me and I was like oh crap so I just went I just moved and it was fine I was fine I was safe you're so out of it and you're so tired and you're so disconnected that you just you stop caring you stop caring about everything all you care about is food all you care about is your body all you care about is what am I going to eat what's my next meal I need to get rid of these calories like you are not living in your body in your life and that was the moment I'm like you need like now it's impacting your day-to-day functioning like you are not present you could have really hurt yourself something bad could have happened you're putting other people at risk of course you need help and it's okay as a psychology student it's okay to see a psychologist I think I just had a lot of shame back then and mental health had a lot of stigma but now everyone all psychology you know students a lot of them see psychologists everyone has one and it's I love that it's so normalized but back then it was very secretive yeah I feel like there is that kind of like stigma around like if you're teaching someone how to like deal with their own emotions you should have yours sorted and like that is just such an that it's like takes away from that psychologist being human as well and it's a bit like we have to remember that everyone including the people that are professionals in that industry still struggle and it's it's not even a struggle it's just living like that's just life yes and I think look to be honest with you and this may be a bit controversial Mm -hmm. I think there's a fine line. I did a video on TikTok that got a lot of interesting comments. It got a lot of hate. People reported it. it oh, created, wow. Yeah, it created quite the stir because in the video I say, I think I talk about confessions of a psychologist or things you need to know. And one of the things I said is if you have unresolved mental health issues, you shouldn't be practicing if it's impairing your judgment. And people were losing it saying, oh, what? Because I have depression, I can't be a psychologist or so what? My dreams are crushed, I can't do it. But it's it's actually in the code of ethics. So in the code of ethics, there's a part that says, you know, if you are in a, these aren't the exact words, but essentially if an, if something is impairing your practice, your judgment, your objectivity, you should not be practicing. And it's that is responsible. And I, when I got reported and all that, I they dropped it, but- the complaint, I backed myself and I said, no, it's true. If you have an issue that you're not resolving, that you're not working on, that's impacting your ability to work with clients, you shouldn't be practicing. 
No, I agree. I agree with that. I know that even from studying counseling, like it's especially, and the, the, the fact in what you're saying is like, because it's impairing with the actual work, it's not that you can't feel that way. It's the fact that if, if you're unable to like work with that client and you're going to have a biased opinion or it's going to impact that, that's like, it should be kind of a no brainer that you don't want it. You're affecting someone else's entire life with what you're saying essentially as well in that conversation. Exactly. And people are paying for that. And I, I think it's responsible to say, hey, I'm probably not in the best place to be working with people. I think that is good self-awareness. I agree. Most definitely. I can't believe you got so much hate for Yeah, that. I wouldn't reporting. expect reporting for that because I don't think that that's what mm-hmm. you were saying either. It wasn't like you were saying, if I have depression, I can't do this. It's like 30-second videos, 60-second videos that are going out to a vulnerable audience yeah. are going to be misinterpreted and they're going to be taken in the wrong way. So you just... Yeah, just got to be a bit mindful of that. No, I totally understand that. I think even with us, like, not luckily we just talk about music and we're like, eh. But yeah. um, <laughs> I know when I was posting a lot of coaching content, there's I'm very careful with what I post because I'm like, I just can't be bothered dealing with anything. But I have other coaches that they'll post their opinion on something and then it's just, like, completely attacked. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And it's hard. It's hard to to share your professional opinion online with a bunch of people that are in that vulnerable state and or even if you're not at a professional opinion like I've got obsessive compulsive disorder and ADHD and I find in a lot of support groups for OCD I find it a really horrible place to get support from because it's just people triggering each other and you just can't even tell like talk about your own thing going mm-hmm. on without someone sort of attacking you for like you just expressing uh-huh. your thought so I actually think that as much as I love social media and I think there's so much good that comes from it there's yeah there's a lot of um attacking that goes on that doesn't need to be had yeah 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 and I think 100% I didn't know you had OCD well we just met but um yes that's very interesting because I get asked a lot about it does you know is it linked with ADHD is there a high um comorbidity so it's interesting you brought that up we can definitely Ooh, Touch on that, please. Like. I would love that because I get, I literally found it so, I, yeah, we can talk about it quickly now. But, um, <laughs> yes, now, but before like, we forget. Yes, before we forget, because I will. Um, no, I've had, I've been diagnosed with OCD since I was 16. Dad has it as, as well. I sp- I'm pretty certain both my parents also have ADHD, but I've only been diagnosed with ADHD the last year and a half. Um, and at first I thought that all my symptoms were all got to, had to do with OCD. And then when I was doing the ADHD quizzes online, I'm like, oh, I'm only getting high scores because like there's an overlap. But then there's, mm-hmm. I can now seeing both of them, I can see what is my OCD and what is my ADHD very clearly now. But in terms of like how they caught, co- like from your perspective, how they coordinate together, like, is there actually a correlation between both? Like, I think... So we know that ADHD is a neurodevelopmental condition or disorder. So it's a brain-based one, which means people struggle with their memory, forgetfulness, organization, uh, processing speed, planning. So that part of the brain, the CEO part of the brain, that's your higher order thinking is just wired differently to people who don't have ADHD. And unlike, say, OCD or depression, it doesn't go away. It's there. It's like an eyesight condition. You need glasses. You need particular things to help manage it, whereas OCD comes from a different category. It's not neurodevelopmental. It's not brain, but it is psychological. So it comes from the obsessive and compulsive related category in 
the diagnostic manual. And it's characterized by having intrusive thoughts and uh, which are called obsessions and then compulsive behaviors or rituals that are aimed to neutralize the anxiety that those thoughts cause. But they are similar because they both have a lot of anxiety. So having ADHD causes anxiety, being late to appointments, forgetting things, being told there's something wrong with you, wondering why you can't do basic life things. And perhaps that would make you more vulnerable to OCD tendencies, like being super obsessed with your calendar, making sure you're not late, doing certain things because you might be trying to prevent bad things happening or prevent that. That's my guess. But also ADHD is more external, whereas OCD is very internal. So ADHD is a lot about how people relate to their environment, whereas OCD is I'm going to deal with my anxiety by turning it kind of inward. And they do, it is believed that they do share a genetic link and there's a lot of genetic vulnerability. I'm not sure if it's in your family, but yes, there is a lot of overlap and 80% of people who have ADHD will have something else, OCD, anxiety. It doesn't just come on its own, very rarely. Yeah, I've learned that as well. Like I feel like since I've gotten the ADHD diagnosis I've realized I'm oh I have dyslexia as well and like oh I suffer with binge oh. eating as well and I'm like oh, oh it's everything <laughs> like that's a question I had for you like for people like me where I'm getting a bunch of I, I don't mind the diagnosis like I like living with letters like I, that's how I like to call it so I'm like I, I enjoy it. I like knowing that from so much of my childhood I felt like I was different so at least now I have a reasoning and it, it kind of gives me a bit of closure but there are moments where it becomes very difficult to differentiate what is a me thing and what is my disorder thing. Like what is actually Mm. my personality and what is like, why does it feel like everything I do is just my disorder? How would you suggest someone could navigate through that kind of feeling? It's like asking what is the meaning of life? I know it feels that way. That's like my everyday question question. before I go to sleep. I'm like, oh my God, but that's just my OCD. I'm like, oh, but that's just the ADHD. (laughs) Oh, but that's probably because of the binge eating. And I'm like, oh, like everything is like. I know, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And I think, look, I agree. I think labels are good. I think that's another thing I get some, you know, comments on is stop labeling people. You shouldn't diagnose. It's not real. But it comes down to your perception of a label and a diagnosis you wouldn't say to someone who goes to the doctor oh my god they diagnosed me with a broken leg oh don't that diagnosis is bad you shouldn't (laughs) diagnosis informs treatment and for many people exactly what you said l healing the treatment is in the diagnosis is being Mm. told hey you're not just crazy you're not just weird you're not whatever yeah you actually have something that explains this so i think you're spot on with that yeah Now, the second part of your question, what is me? What is my OCD? I think it's important to sort of realize your personality develops or solidifies when you're about 18 years old, what you like, what you enjoy. Your personality forms earlier, but when we speak about personality disorders, you you can't really diagnose someone before 18. And I think it's important to know that, look, symptoms of ADHD will always be present. They'll always impact you, but it doesn't really determine who you are and what you like and the person that you're becoming. I think it's a challenging question. How do you differentiate what's you and what's your... I speak to my psychiatrist and I have my psychiatrist and my psychologist. I'm like all backed up with my people, but um, 
and my life coach and my ADHD coach. I have like everything. But um, I feel like I've come to terms with the fact that like all of it is who I am. Like it's all part of me. It's not, I can label it as the disorder and that helps me in that what we just discussed kind of way. But in terms of when I do question that kind of part of myself before I go to sleep at night, I remind myself like all of that is part of me and I love those parts of me, Mm -hmm. even though there's parts that can be a bit frustrating sometimes and they might they could be related to that disorder it's still at the end of the day like who I am and Mm. reminding myself I'm not separate from the disorder to some extent like the and I don't have to be against it either like it is like I can just embrace it as like well that's just part of my personality and I can love that part of my personality or I can be like oh I can try work on that part of my personality so I just try and remind myself that it, it doesn't have to be like this thing that you don't have to figure it yeah, out. Yeah, I don't yeah. have to. Fi- I don't have to f- try put myself under a certain hat. Yeah. For example, like, maybe it yes. can all be a big hat. Maybe a way to look at it as well as you wouldn't be who you are today if it yeah. wasn't for these things. That's how I like to look at all things that have happened in life. Because I'm yeah. like, oh yeah, my parents divorced. I guess I wouldn't be like this if it wasn't for that. Like I have yeah. to look, I have to find some positive in that situation. But I, I do feel like that does help because I, I like the person that I am. At the, like I've liked the person that I am for years now. Um, regardless of all them. the situations I've gone through. So, um, yeah, I think for me, because I feel that way about myself, it's made it a lot easier to accept that the disorders are not something I need to feel like pull me in so many different directions, I guess. Yeah, and two things. Yep. It's so funny because that's probably the OCD part of you that's like you need to figure this out yes. and you need to <laughs> separate it and understand it. Um, and then, yeah, so... I think you said a really good thing and it's parts. We all have parts Mm -hmm. and a lot of schema therapy looks at parts work. So what happens is throughout our life, depending on what we experience, our personality forms parts, right? I know I have a part that is a 14-year-old defensive girl in me and this is the girl that went through the eating disorder that was self-conscious, that was like, leave me alone and every now and then she'll get triggered, yeah, when I feel like I'm being like attacked or someone's questioning me, she might come up. But I've learned to recognize that part and manage that part. And I know that that part serves a function. Mm. So we all have different parts of ourselves that serve a function, but we need to learn to recognize the different parts and what those parts need. So there may be days where your OCD part is more activated. And what does that part of me need today to feel good? And how can all these parts work together? rather than against one another. I think that was perfectly, like you've articulated that perfectly for my brain just now. (laughs) My OCD (laughs) is very happy that it has an answer. (laughs) But that's so true. I definitely, that's really true because there are certain days where I do, like the other day I did recognize like, oh, okay, the OCD is a little bit more fiery today. I'm going to focus on that and like try calm myself in that way but then today for example forgot to take my medication in the morning i'm like okay let's get back to focus today it's all about parts a quick question as well about adhd to be honest it's not something that i truly thought about for myself for many many years and i wasn't educated in it as well after l got her diagnosis and we we started talking about it a lot uh, i noticed that since i had my child a Mm. lot of different things have become I don't want to say popped up because they've always kind of been there but they've become noticeably stronger and I just wanted to ask you is that I don't want to say normal but can that happen once you've had a child all the time that's something I've been struggling with because it's like I'm discovering this whole new side of myself 
since mm-hmm. having him. And it's kind of been a really wild roller coaster as well because I also had postpartum depression on top of that. Having a child, yeah. can it bring out things that you didn't know were there? 100%. And this is what happened over the pandemic, over COVID, is yes. so many new mums and people who had kids really realised for the first time how much they struggle with day-to-day tasks that other people find easy because when you have a kid and if you have undiagnosed ADHD, it becomes so clear how hard life feels and how different things feel. And parenting with ADHD, if you don't know you have it, even if you know you have it, is extremely overwhelming. You feel like you don't have the skills or something's wrong and keeping up with kids' schedules and doing all that mum stuff. But I think the pandemic brought that to the light even more because you were at home. The basic things felt super hard. But yes, many, many, many mums, so many have messaged me that realized they have ADHD or they're seeking an assessment after they have kids because one, they're not able to mask anymore because the the stress outweighs the coping or masking. And then secondly, they may see symptoms in their child. They get their child assessed and then they realize they have it because there's a really high genetic component. Right. Yeah. How did you know? Like what was it about being a mum that led you down this oh, path? The, what you said before, it's the overwhelming anxiety that I would feel over daily tasks. I also got really bad anxiety over the simplest things that my son would do. And and also on top of that, I am so extremely disorganized and I feel like that disorganization is affecting my parenting life because I feel like I'm jumbling not not only like appointments and trying to keep up and trying to make sure everything's going right but actual material things I feel like I have become a major slob like I'm struggling Mm -hmm. with keeping things organized I like to call all the drawers in my kitchen and my bathrooms organized chaos because I know where everything is but to a different eye it's a complete mess I don't know. It's just been a lot of things that just have kind of built up together. And then after discussing it along with L, kind of helped me put two and two together what is maybe happening. Yeah, wow. And it's so <laughs> hard not to be hard on yourself. Yes. You know, because a lot of mums who go through this will start to question, like, am I meeting my child's needs? Mm. Am I you know, looking after them enough, am I doing all that? And I think earlier you mentioned postnatal depression and many mums with ADHD experience it. But the problem is that they'll often get treated for depression or they'll get diagnosed with it when it could be ADHD. Mm. I I feel like that is something that I am potentially going through because my son's three and a half. I'm still dealing with postnatal depression. And I've been on antidepressants and everything like that, but I feel like nothing is really hitting the mark for me. So that's a very Are you on ADHD? Are you on ADHD meds? No, I have I have not been diagnosed. Oh, but you think it could be? No, yes. Okay, but you haven't had an assessment? No. Right, okay. I thought you, you did. Right. No, 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 no. 
it's super interesting because people will say to me, how do I know if it's depression? How do I know if it's anxiety? How do I look to be diagnosed with ADHD? Obviously you have to do a full assessment Mm. and a psychologist or a psychiatrist can do that, but a psychiatrist has to be the one to prescribe medication. Mm. So you do need to end up seeing them. I believe it's when you've done all the things you've been on the antidepressants, you've done the meditation, you've done the journaling, you've done the walking, you eat reasonably well You've done everything, but you feel like there's this persistent piece of the puzzle that's missing and you can usually track it back. So you need to have had symptoms before the age of 12, Mm -hmm. which makes diagnosing ADHD in adults very hard and complicated because a lot of people don't remember that far back. Women in particular are perfectionistic in school, so they're not that kid jumping up and down. They stay at the back. They sort of shut down. They're like the good girl in class. Without diagnosing or, you know, providing any psychological advice, I think for many people, if you've been treated for anxiety and depression and you are doing all the things and you're trying to manage it, but forgetfulness, disorganization, struggling to remember things, um, being late to appointments, feeling chaotic, always having, you know, ruminative thoughts that are persistent that's when it could be indicative of ADHD, whereas anxiety goes up and down. It flares up. It has moments, whereas, yeah, the concentration and the executive functioning doesn't stop. Mm. I could agree with that. When I got my actual diagnosis for ADHD, that's I, I sorted out because I literally tried the meditation. I tried the – I was working with coaches, psychologists, on, and I was like, okay, it must all be the OCD, but – it was, it was the fact that I was doing everything I could possibly do and my OCD symptoms were at a place where I, they were manageable, where I was like, why am I still feeling like this? Why is it, Why can I still not have any energy to like leave the bed in the morning or do anything with my day? Mm-hmm. And it like that's what's made me seek out the actual diagnosis and realize like, okay, this is something completely different because it really does, the, or the mm. executive dysfunction does not stop in my yeah, opinion. It yeah, it doesn't stop and you just learn to manage it and and deal with it and even just like those negative thoughts like why are you like this why are you so chaotic why are you so disorganized whereas we see in anxiety it's usually the opposite people are like hyper overcompensating and they can do that in OCD and they they can be that in ADHD because they're trying to overcompensate but yeah I think how long can you sort of track back this behavior like is there anything earlier that you can think of Al? uh i mean i think the disorganization has always been present but i feel mm. like that's gotten worse because i feel like my time management has <laughs> maybe gotten worse because i obviously have to take care of another human you know what i mean i have to make sure he's fed and he's sleeping he's bathed blah blah blah, blah. yeah um so i feel like that those two things have gotten worse i've always been i am known as the one in my family to oh Elle's always late so that's always been something i've dealt with as well to be honest i feel like it's hard to talk about pre-12 um i know one thing is like since i've had a baby i feel like my memory has kind of gotten a bit worse as well but also because i don't really have a relationship with one of my parents i can't really ask and if I ask my dad, I'm like, hey, dad, do you remember this? He'll be like, nah, you're great. <laughs> like that's yeah. usually his answer. Yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's hard. It's hard to it think is hard that far and back. That's, 
that's one thing I guess I don't really agree with in the industry and I think it it will probably change is sometimes people with ADHD do have parents who are narcissistic mm. who won't give them their reports or who say, no, you're fine, don't be ridiculous, you're always blaming me, bad parenting. And I've had people who a psychiatrist won't diagnose them because they can't get access to their reports or the, the, the parent won't do an assessment. And I, I think that's there needs to be options for those people because it's like, oh, just because I can't get data from before you're 12, let's just not diagnose you. You know, so I think that can be problematic. Um, but there are, look, there are ways around it. If you can't get access to that, it's, you're not going to be denied support. Um, but yeah, I want you to know that it's really common for mothers to discover they have ADHD that wasn't picked up, uh, when they were children. And like we said, it presents differently in genders. You know, women have a lot of the inattentive subtypes. So there's three subtypes, hyperactive, impulsive, inattentive, and combined. And these types of women have chronic disorganization. They feel they're underachieving, but they're not disruptive as we would expect. Mm -hmm. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You also answered mm. my next question of like men and female, male and female things. So that was nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think just to add on that, so we use a book called the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Conditions. And in there, the diagnostic criteria, it's very brain-based. And also it does – and what I don't like about the DSM, which maybe it might change in future years, it's still very, very new, but only in the fifth edition, text revised, is it lumps child and adult under one diagnosis. So, for example, the ADHD criteria is for adults and children and whatever. That's fine. But – the criteria does look like it fits a hyperactive male. Why? Because emotional symptoms of ADHD are difficult to quantify. You can't exactly say, you know, emotional dysregulation, like how do you sort of, it's hard to quantify that as a symptom for a brain condition. That's my understanding of it. But, yeah, things like emotion dysregulation, men may handle it different to say women, and this was why women may get diagnosed with borderline personality disorder because of the mood, the mood swings. With the hyperactive inattentive subtype, for women it's a lot of mental racing, mental chatter. 
interrupting, difficulty switching off, uh, speaking over people, that sort of thing. Whereas males may be more physically hyperactive and maybe more risk-taking. And there are women who may have that too, but yeah, I think this is the reason it can get missed, especially in women. But we're learning, we're doing better. I think so too. I feel like um, I was going to ask that question because I find that I have a lot of, I've after I've gotten diagnosed, I've realized a lot of my friends from high school that, because I didn't, I didn't have a lot of friends in high school, but like the few friends that I did connect with all have now also been diagnosed with ADHD, which has been very fun yep. for us. Um, but I've noticed that my male friends with ADHD, I have a lot more characteristics in common with them than I do with the females that have ADHD. And I always wondered like, why, <laughs> like, why am I like, I, I definitely do have a lot of the characteristics of a female, especially when I was a child. But as I've become an adult, I'm very much more the impulsive, spontaneous, scatterbrained, but also like very aggressive ADHD mm-hmm. version. Understanding, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize, like emotional dysregulation is part of the ADHD and they think it's just like being disorganized and forgetful and stuff like that. But like I find that the emotional dysregulation is actually what made it so difficult for me to get diagnosis because I didn't realize that that was even part of this. Um, so it's really, I feel like, yeah, I wish that that was higher, like more of a priority in the criteria sometimes. Yeah, of course. And don't forget, imagine this, imagine living a life where you're told, you know, you've got to be on time. If only you did this, if only you applied yourself, why can't you just be like everyone else? Shush, be quiet, don't talk. And you don't know how to control that as a child. So when you don't know how to control it, you're going to internalize these messages and think there's something wrong with me. Mm. I'm not good enough. Why can't I sit still? And that's going to cause emotional issues. That's going to cause you to feel not good enough, self-esteem, depression, anxiety, all of that. And many people with ADHD, not everyone, but having an upbringing that was potentially traumatic or, you know, small traumas or big traumas, whatever it is, or growing up with parents who didn't teach you how to regulate your emotions is very common as well. So you don't know how to control your emotions. You're just told to be quiet. You're just told to stop jumping on the furniture. Mm. And unless you get help, who teaches you how to breathe? Who teaches you how to regulate your nervous system? So that's why we see a lot of people with ADHD turn to binge eating or smoking, substances, addictions, and all that because they are just trying to self-soothe or self-medicate. Interesting on the topic of binge eating um, because we've had a few people ask questions around binge eating as well and myself, I only found out recently that I suffer from binge eating. Besides the ADHD, obviously with ADHD but also without ADHD when it comes to binge eating, like what usually brings that on? What kind of is the – like why would you say that that binge eating occurs like and that is so fulfilling to the ADHD mind or to the other mind as well? Yeah, so binge eating let's define it it's eating a large amount of food in a short period of time and feeling a loss of control and you feel guilty you feel stressed you feel bad about it and it's not an enjoyable experience it's not like oh i had so much stuffed turkey on christmas whoops i'm full but i feel really satisfied it's distressing for people and the reason it's linked is going back to the pandemic so many women discovered they have adhd 
so many people struggled with their relationship with food because mm. we we didn't have anything. We didn't have, especially in Melbourne, we were literally in jail for so long. Mm. Gosh, we in jail. We couldn't go for literally. a walk. Yeah. It was crazy. We couldn't do the things that make us feel good. We couldn't go to the gym. We couldn't, you know, speak with friends without worrying we were breaking the law of going out of our radius. So many of us turn to food a little bit more than we would or alcohol. Explaining now, my life a lot right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Binge eating is linked to ADHD and I don't feel this link has enough awareness around it because psychologists aren't really trained. They're not trained in eating disorders and they're not trained in assessing neurodiversity unless you specifically go out and do that training after you're qualified. So it's not well understood that you're really taught about depression, anxiety, all of this, and maybe it's changed, but back in my day, this is how it was. And people with ADHD, we know they have lower access to the neurotransmitters in your brain, dopamine, nor epinephrine. So dopamine is what makes you feel good. It's what makes you feel a sense of reward and accomplishment, whereas nor epinephrine helps you get started on tasks. It helps you initiate things. That's why people with ADHD really struggle to get started on tasks and they procrastinate because they don't have that access to dopamine or nor epinephrine that neurotypicals have so food is a really quick way to get that dopamine fixed so this is the first reason because of the neurotransmitters i think a lot of people turn to food because it does give them that sense of feeling good that dopamine uh, sugar carbs it's self-soothing the second thing is we learn to self-soothe with food from a young age don't cry, have the lollipop. You know, when you go to the dentist when you're a kid, well done, you were such a good girl, have a lollipop. We're taught from a young age to associate food with reward or to use food to avoid pain or to soothe pain. So we learn that from a young age. The third thing is people with ADHD often forget to eat. Mm-hmm. They forget their lunch. Mm-hmm. They forget. Me big time. Uh, that is the op- the, I'm the opposite of that. I'm yeah? constantly thinking about food. Yeah. And I'm constantly kind of hungry and I'm constantly thinking I want to eat something. Okay. Mm. That's interesting. And I guess, look, there's not a one size fits all. Everyone's different depending on what you've gone through, what you've experienced, mm. etc. But for many, they forget to eat. And then by the time they're like, oh crap, I have to eat. They're starving. And then that can make you vulnerable to binge eating. And when you're starving, when you haven't eaten properly, your judgment's impaired. So you're like, I'll just eat a block of chocolate for dinner. That'll be fine. That <laughs> <laughs> is me as well. I'll have like a chocolate lava cake and that's like my exciting, like, I'll, but I'll eat like three of them. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So this is something we address um, in my program because you really need food structure to help prevent binge eating. And the final thing is, Having ADHD is stressful, especially if it's undiagnosed. And we deal with stress with food. Food is a socially acceptable, immediately available resource to us. It's much more appropriate than cocaine, mm, yes. for example. Yes, exactly. Uh, and more affordable. But it's the thing that is so socially accepted. It's immediate. We get on a phone and people with ADHD love Uber Eats. Oof. 
Yeah, during the pandemic, <laughs> I, I swear, it. I think I, I ended up having to delete the Uber Eats app from my phone after I quit full-time work because I was still working in the office during the pandemic and I lived, I think I spent thousands of dollars on Uber yeah. Eats that year. It's so thousands. easy to. That's the problem. It's yeah. very easy. And it was like, I would get to work and I, my boss would come in at like 10.30 and he'd be like, Ella, are you eating a cheeseburger right now? I'm like, yes. Like, and it would happen like <laughs> yeah. three times a week. And it was just because I, and I, the way you described binge eating before is how I used to be before the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, it was like next level, like binging, like next level mm. where I would eat that in the morning, then not eat anything else throughout the rest of the day and then eat again in the middle of the night. But like, it, it was just, it, it's never in a, it's never in a structured way. Yeah. Never. Yep. It's sporadic and. Don't forget, the pandemic caused a lot of uncertainty, a lot of stress, and a lot of dysregulation. So to try to get certainty, to try to self-soothe, we turn to food, exactly what you said. But then what happens is we're not dealing with the root cause. We create a new problem, which is the binge eating, but we're not really going to get into the root cause of what's causing that because what people don't realize, they come to me, they're like, I need to stop binge eating, help me with my binge eating. But their binge eating is serving a function and it's meeting a need. And we have to figure out what that is. As in a need in terms of like they're doing it because secretly it's giving them the need of like, like for me, I think I've worked out that it kind of gave met this need of connection because like when I was younger, dad used to, as like his way of like spending time with my, me and my sister, we'd go to Macca's together or we'd go to Hungry Jack's together or KFC. And like now, and I remember I started eating a lot when I was working full time because I I found it as a way to socialize with the people around me. So if mm. I didn't know how to make conversation with them, because I'm neurodivergent, I don't know how to make conversation with people, I second guess myself. I'd be like, oh, do you want to get Red Rooster for lunch today? Let's get Red Rooster. And I would feel like this fulfillment as if I was bonding with that person because I ate food with them. I love that. Yeah. That's so interesting. Look, it is. And that that's completely functional and okay. And that's fine. I think we've kind of gone too far the other way with diet culture. Don't emotionally eat. If you emotionally eat, you need to stop. Don't have this, don't have that. I'm of the opinion of it's fine to emotionally eat. It's fine to connect over food. But if it's getting to the point it's causing you distress, then let's talk about it. But you're exactly right. When we talk about meeting a need, we have primary needs that we need to get met. As a child, we need emotional affection. We need to feel safe. We need play, we need creativity, and we need to feel safe to express our emotions and feelings as children. And if those needs aren't getting adequately met in childhood, we will find other ways to meet those needs. So perhaps we throw tantrums as a child to get the parent to pay attention. But then what happens is we take these coping strategies into adulthood and throwing a tantrum as an adult doesn't exactly work. And we're all dysregulated adults throwing tantrums if we don't deal with it. But yeah, when you think about needs, like is it meeting a need of comfort? Is it meeting a need of connection? And the way you figure this out is when you're about to binge or you're craving to do that, asking yourself, what else am I feeling right now? What do I really need right now? Apart from these five quarter pounders, what am I actually feeling? What do I actually need? And then trying to build your self-awareness around it. That's how it works out that it was like that because I asked myself that question. I was like, because I found that with my chocolate lava cake scenario, I was like, I was trying to stop myself from binging these chocolate lava cakes every night. And I was like, 
okay, I realize if I'm by myself, I can't eat them. Why can't I eat them when I'm by myself? Like if I spend the day, really? yeah, if I had the whole night to myself, I wouldn't binge. But if I, well, I would binge, but not specifically on certain types of foods. And I noticed that that certain type of food would be warm and like kind of bring me this feeling of love and intimacy to some extent. And I could only mm-hmm. eat them in the presence of my family or like loved one. But if That's they weren't so there, I could, it's like I didn't have the desire to eat anymore. It was weirdly, I went through this whole like month of like really focusing on why I'm eating what I'm eating. When I worked out, it was binge eating. And I was like, okay, let me try to trace back what my body, my, my mind is telling me what my body is feeling and craving right now. And I noticed like, oh, I'm not feeling very fulfilled in my relationship right now. Or I'm not feeling really like I'm getting the connection I need from my mum right now. And so when I was around those people, that's when I would suddenly have this urge of eating. Like, wow. urge. Yeah. Mm, that's so opposite because normally people binge eat in secret or in private. And I think it just highlights that everyone has a different yeah. need yeah. and a different function. Yeah. But first of all, chocolate lava cakes are delicious. I know, that's my favorite thing about favorite them. Thing in the and world. I feel like we've said chocolate lava cakes so Guys, much. I'm telling you, go to Red Rooster. <laughs> starting to drool this is why i keep saying red rooster red rooster have these chocolate lava cakes that really got me hooked and i can't My undo goodness. them i'm going red because oh, i want a chocolate when you cake. said red rooster that unlocked a memory i don't think i've had red rooster in years oh my, my mum used to take us and we used to get roll. it as children cheesy no cheesy nuggets man yeah, the rooster roll with the mayo and the uh, chicken enough food talk <laughs> yeah remember when i said i can't stop getting about food it's a yeah, yeah I can't stop yeah <laughs> uh, thank you so much for that in regards to like the binge eating and stuff like that that was another question I was going to have you because I have noticed that that's something like when I watch your videos some of the um examples of why you might like how you might notice you have binge eating is like that secrecy or the need to kind of like that guilt which I definitely feel mm-hmm. the guilt when I eat but the secrecy isn't there now I was going to ask you that question because I have a younger sister where the secrecy is very much there where she like she's 10 and she'll hide food under her bed and I can like like and like sneak her food in the middle of the night so where for me I've never felt the need to do that and I was going to ask you if do you think that's because no one like I've never fluctuated too much with my body weight before as a child or like mm. as an adult even I child I feel like I'm 12 right now um, <laughs> but um and I I was thinking like psychologically is that am I not doing it in secret because I've never had to because everyone my whole life has told me you need to eat more because I've been presumed to be underweight like do you think yeah. that could be that like it could be the messaging you've received yeah. is, is different. And remember, what people around us tell us form the story in our mind. So people are like, you need to eat more and eating's been normalised and it's okay to eat and we connect over eating, then your messaging around that is going to be very different to someone who say, oh, should you be eating that? You know, that's got a lot of sugar in it. Mm. Their messaging is going to be very different and your thoughts and your beliefs affect your behavior. So that's going to lead their behavior to be very different. Very interesting. I feel like, yeah, yeah, there's so many ways. I think that's one thing with, um, like with all of these disorders we're talking about today, like there's all obviously like the way that most people will, will experience it, but it doesn't mean that like, like for anyone that's listening, just because you're not experiencing every single thing I'm saying or Elle's saying, or you're saying like, doesn't mean that you might not be still experiencing it. There's so many different ways to be have like there's so many different ways that you can relate to ADHD without having it exactly the same way I have it, for example. Yeah, there can be 
so many different combinations, but as long as you're meeting a number of the criteria, it's impacting your life. It's not better explained by another mental health condition. That's basically what it is. But with binge eating, it's when it's negatively impacting your life, it's occurring on a regular basis, and it's causing clinically significant distress. I actually saw one of your reels that really spoke to me, actually. You were talking about bikinis and you mm. were saying, me like when I was 18 and trying to pick a bikini, it was like, oh, I don't know. I don't like how this looks. And then even when you're in your 20s, you're like, yeah, I don't know. But then when you're in your 30s, you're like, fuck this. I just look good in this bikini. Woo! And my question was, because I'm still very much in the 18 to 20 range of that reel where it was like, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. How can I, how can we, because I know many people feel this way, how can we get to that mind frame? Or is it... I love this question. Is it simply just a matter of maturity? Yeah, I love this question. So it's a couple of things, right? The first one is... We do live in a society that does body shame. We do live in a society where it is hard to be in a larger body. I'm not going to deny that. We do live in a society where people are fat phobic. So I'm not going to be like, don't care, like just whatever, blah, blah. It's okay to care and it's okay to be self-conscious. And the point is you can feel those things, but you can still have the courage to do the things that are hard, even though you're scared. You know, I think so many people are like, you got to stop caring what people think. We, Of course we're going to care what people think. Care what people think, but be willing to do it anyway because people are going to say stuff. People are going to think negative things. But are you going to put your life on hold because of because of that, because of them, because of what you're worried about? And I think it is. it really is about mindset. It's about saying, what's the worst that can happen? If I wear this bikini, if I wear these bathers, yes, I might feel a bit uncomfortable for five, 10 minutes, but what's the worst that can happen? So for you, what are you so afraid of, Elle, if you were to wear that bikini? Uh, That is a very good question. I think sometimes it's more how I feel about myself. I think I've set expectations in my head on what I would love to look like and especially the last few years since I've had my child, I, you know, don't look how I did before I had him. So I think it's more the expectation to look how I did. And so it's more of an inner battle. I don't necessarily think to myself, oh, I'm worried about what my husband thinks or I'm worried about what people think. I think it's more inner demons. So the only person holding you back is you. 100%. Yeah. And you just got to question yourself, right? So why do you have this expectation? Why is it important that your body needs to be the way you think it needs to be? What is that going to give you or get you that you can't have now? See, that is a question I really struggle to answer. I don't know. I don't know what it would give me. I just feel like what comes with it, I like the idea of. Like the thought of not having a mental breakdown every time I have to get changed for something. Like mm, that's mm. that's the kind of stuff that I yearn for. Whereas yeah. at the moment, you know, especially the last few months or so, 
I feel like whenever I've been getting changed for an event, um, I, I have a really hard time with it. Yep. I think it's more from that point of view. Like, I just want to be able to pop something on and be out the door and just feel woo. I just want to be like that. But I'm a bit far from that at the moment. And the problem is mm. people think that'll go away when I lose weight or that will go away when I get the body. And they're not trying to manage the problem without seeking that body. So the thing is you don't have to throw yourself in the deep end. You don't need to go out in a, you know, tiny bikini, a micro bikini. But I say to people, step into the stretch zone. So you've got the stretch zone, then you've got your panic zone and a full bikini might be panic zone. But confidence starts with courage. Everyone's like, I want to be more confident. I want to be more confident. It takes courage and it takes courage to feel uncomfortable. Mm. And feeling uncomfortable is about wearing those betas, even though part of your brain is saying, no, no, you shouldn't do this until your body is better. Because it's like stepping in a cold pool. When you first step in, it's freezing. You're like, I want to get out. This is awful. Da, 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 da. But if you just stay with that discomfort mm. for a bit, you don't feel the water. Then you take the next step and you're like, oh, this is so bad. But if you tolerate the discomfort it brings, if you tolerate that, you'll become conditioned. So it's the same with wearing a bikini. Let's say you wanted to wear a bikini to the beach. Well, let's start with shorts and a bikini top, right? Let's wear shorts or something like that. Once you become conditioned to that and that doesn't feel as scary because you've stepped into the stretch zone, then you can take it a next step and a next step to the point where you desensitize yourself to the fear. I really liked that cold water analogy. That makes Thanks. perfect sense. Mm. Yeah. So you got to ask yourself, am I stepping into the cold water today or am I avoiding it? Because avoidance perpetuates a bad body image. And to relate it back to body dysmorphic disorder, which is what you asked me about, so body dysmorphic disorder comes under the obsessive and compulsive related categories. It comes under the OCD uh, branch, right? It's not an eating disorder and it's this, I actually did my thesis on it. It's a preoccupation with a real or perceived flaw about your appearance. But this, this flaw might be minor or it might be slightly noticed by others. Like perhaps you've got a mole on your head or you've got a, a bump in your nose or you've got a big forehead. Like that might be true, but it may also be minor. But when you have body dysmorphic disorder, you focus on this so intently. You may take hours to leave your house. You're either a frequent checker or a frequent avoider. People spend three to six hours a day body checking, checking the mirror, wearing a hat, covering it, or they avoid. They avoid mirrors. They avoid everything together. But this flaw causes so much distress and ability to function in your daily life. And it's more than just I'm fat and thin. It's my nose, my skin, my hair. It's a specific body part. Mm. It's very interesting you mentioned the OCD because I was going to ask you if it was correlated. Not in that kind of way. I'm not – I'm quite like – like I mentioned to you earlier, like I haven't fluctuated too much in my body and I have fluctuated the last few years when the binge eating has gotten worse. Um, 
and approaching 30, I assume hormones and everything has to do with that as well. But I've been looking at photos that I once saw, and I know I've had a few people ask the same question to us as well, which is why I'm mentioning it. But I've looked at photos that I had of myself maybe a year and a half ago or two years ago, maybe even earlier, where I remember taking that photo and thinking I looked chunky like how could I ever post this photo what is wrong with me and I looked at the my grandfather passed last week so I was going throughout my old phones to look through photos to find to put him in, in like a little thing for his funeral and I found those photos of myself and I'm like holy shit I'm hot like you what the hell I had I had like I was chiseled yeah. and I'm like what mm. what the hell and I remember and I was like how why did I not po- like what like why, why did I you just enjoy yeah like, why just, just being in the moment at the time that's happened a few times throughout my mm. life where I've had those moments happen but it's happening even more now and I'm realizing have I had a level of dysmorphia this whole time and I although my OCD is very based upon checking when it comes to this, mm. it is avoidance. Like mm. I notice I don't look in, like I'll look in mirrors on my face because I don't have anything that really bother, bothers me about that. But when you said mole, I have this mole right in between my chest and I have for years, I avoided that. Avoided wearing anything that wore that, avoided looking at it, avoided showing it off to anyone until it got to a point wow. where I actually, your your cold water analogy, I slowly got myself like a, a more comfortable and more comfortable with showing it. And that, Show the mole. Yeah, and it Show actually – and now I don't give a shit about my mole. If anyone wants to say anything about my mole, I'm like, ugh. And, but back then to me, my mole was huge. And now I'm like, oh, my mole's yeah. just my mole. But I'm, now I'm realising, like, oh, that could be part of the OCD. Um, yeah. The um, Look, the, uh, the, the reason it's in the same category as OCD is because there's compulsive behaviour designed yeah. to neutralise the anxiety. So because I'm so self, self-conscious of my mole, I'm going to engage in compulsive behaviour, covering the mole – putting makeup on it, wearing clothes to alleviate the anxiety that thoughts about that mole bring, like, oh, people going to think it's yeah. really bad. So that's why it's, it's linked. But when you started to expose it, what did you learn about it or learn about yourself? I realised that no one else was focusing on it firstly, so except for myself, and that it was – I also noticed that people kept telling me it was symmetrical and I was like, oh, I found myself finding that. I'm like, oh, at least it's symmetrical. Like I could look at, like, I don't know why. And then I kept, every time I had like a bad thought about it, I'm like, it's symmetrical, it's fine. Um, But I noticed in myself that I realized, like I started showing it, like wearing it more, like wearing it more, like wearing clothes (laughs) that exposed it more, more, probably when I was like 23, I'm 28 now. And I noticed back then, I was still working on my way to being a bit more confident in myself and my like presence. But um, I noticed that showing that made me feel like it was okay to be seen. It almost felt like I was never allowed to be seen if I showed, like it made me not feel like just my mole was being seen. It made me feel like my whole body was being seen in my whole face in a way that I like actually wasn't that little girl sitting in the back of the classroom anymore kind of way. Mm. The thing is you have to rewire your brain by teaching it new experiences. The part of the brain that's linked to anxiety and OCD and all that, it learns from experience. So you need to teach it that showing this mole is a safe experience and it's okay because once you actually expose yourself to the thing you're so afraid of, the bikini, going on a first date, showing your mole, the brain learns, hey, I was safe, it was okay, let's do it again. So you're more likely to reinforce 
the behavior because you've taught your brain it's not this big, scary, bad thing that's going to ruin your life. It's so true. that I find that to be true with exposure therapy for my actual OCD as well. Mm. Like every time yes. – when it when I finally do the thing, I'm like, okay, nothing that didn't happen. Then sometimes you'll do the thing and something will happen, and but coincidentally, and then it's like, oh, backwards. But like most of the time, it it works itself out and it's fine. Yeah. I've also found like I mentioned the not to change topics, but I'm going to. Um, but the so I just mentioned before, my grandfather's passed away um, over the last week, and that was one of my biggest themes in my OCD by far the largest theme in my OCD was this fear and the intrusive thoughts were very much surrounding him and this kind of event happening. And um, I'm very grateful that I was actually in the room when he did pass because I feel like that in some way has given me a lot of closure and made me realize how much of my life I, how actually mentally unwell I probably was without realizing that how many things I stopped myself from doing or how many times I stopped myself from seeing him because I was fearful of what my thoughts would do to me in my head. Mm. Um, and it, it was like a, a, an exposure therapy that I didn't go out of my way to do, but in some way it's actually been the only thing I think that's ever going to help me be comfortable with that fear I had and that death like and death in general um and it's still been it hasn't happened that long ago it was only two weeks ago but it really goes to show like I really believe in exposure therapy like I I truly like a hunt I feel like by far that's been the most helpful thing in my life for OCD and anxiety it's a must you can't you can't think your way out of the problem you have to lean into the problem and lean into fear and exactly like you said, sorry to hear about your, your grandfather That's and okay. your loss. Sometimes the best thing that can happen to people with OCD is something that is their fear. So for many people during the pandemic, they developed OCD and they were so scared they'd get the pandemic, they'd get COVID and die. And the best thing they could do is get COVID because that's exposure therapy and showed them that they weren't going to die and their world wasn't going to end. So they know even with all these rituals and cleaning and sanitizing, I still got it. So it proves the OCD wrong. Mm, I actually found the same with the pandemic because for many years before the pandemic happened, I would have this existential crisis feeling that like, oh my God, this is going to happen and like the world's going to end and everyone's going to thing. And then something like the pandemic happening actually kind of made, I was the most relaxed. I probably, besides the binge eating, let's be honest. But besides (laughs) that, I was probably the most relaxed in my mind. I had been in years because I felt like I was handling something I had already prepared for, for so many years that (laughs) by the time it came, I was like, oh, okay. Like I, I don't have to stress about it anymore. But, and now I'm not like the existential, I've noticed that those kind of themes have sort of lessened over time with it, but yeah I feel like yeah sometimes it really is true that like the thing that you're the most fearful of sometimes you need that to happen for you to realize like it's not like it's bigger in your head especially when you haven't like in my case I had never lost someone before that's why it was like this big big thing hanging over my head and now that it's happened it's like it's, it's so much bigger because you've never experienced it before and you can add whatever you want into it and the unfortunately for me like the limit does not exist as to what I can add in in it so yes and I I think accepting the worst case scenario sets you free I agree accepting that I'm gonna wear bathers to the beach and someone may come up to me and say you're disgusting if that happens I can handle it Mm. 
by accepting the worst case scenario and it might happen, you will be emotionally set free. I feel like we've really hit the mark with everything. Yes. Really. I feel like this has been so good. Thank this you so much. Amazing. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm actually, this whole time I'm like, maybe she's got like availability for clients because they're really struggling. <laughs> like, <laughs> I did want to touch on limerence because it has blown my mind, yes, yes, right? Yes. So I've been watching your videos and I've noticed you speak about limerence a lot blew my mind when I first watched them because I had never heard of this term before and this is definitely something that not only myself has experienced but I can see in a lot of my friends and my family members as well yeah if you could go into limerence a little bit and then yeah, yeah. explain like how to differentiate like how is it different to love and how can you kind of like how do you realize when you're in limerence because I feel like that's a very hard thing to when you're in it to realize that you're doing yes and I want to first start by clarifying that Limerence, it's not a diagnosis. It's not some sort of mental health condition. It's a state. It's just a state of, of mind. It's a state of being in. And it's just a state of having an intense longing for another person, even though they don't fully reciprocate. So as a kid, you can have, you know, this obsession with someone or even a fictional character. And the limerent person struggles to think about anything else except their crush. And on the extreme end of the scale, they may neglect their social life, their work, their responsibilities. It was first discovered by a psychologist in 1970, Dorothy Tenov, when she conducted a series of interviews and noticed some people's experience of love were particularly intense. She found that this intense feeling can affect anyone, regardless of gender, age, culture, or any other trait. And it's a growing interest, especially in the neurodiverse world, but we still, it's still in its very early stages, so we don't know too much about it. But essentially, I think the reason people who are neurodiverse, ADHD, or um, especially on the autism spectrum can relate to it is because they can fixate on people. So we know people with ADHD can hyper-focus or hyper-fixate on something they're really interested in, yes, it can be a person. And also people on the spectrum have fixed interests and they can f- have a fixed interest on a person as well. So I think that's why many people with neurodiversity can relate to this state. I agree with you. I feel like that is probably why it's like very easy to just get like, it's almost as, as easy as me like getting fixated with chess when I was in like grade two. I was like, very into chess and all I could talk about was chess but I've had moments in time where that's the only thing I can do and it's about a person as well and it feels yes. and it almost feels the same way like the passion is just the same yes yeah. about chess and someone yes I really like <laughs> chess <laughs> and the thing is you both you both have to like chess you said what's the difference between love and limerence love requires a real meaningful connection with another person and the other person receives reciprocates I mean you can be in love with someone but real love it's a real meaningful connection whereas limerence could be you know with someone you've never met mm. it could be with mm. someone who like has a no idea or something. yeah it could yeah it could be this state about lust and chasing after someone and it's all about the chase and I think the reason with ADHD it's so attractive is because people with ADHD do have sensation seeking needs they are impulsive they it's exciting for them as well so I think it meets that need as well so I think there's yeah there's massive differences I think 
love is reciprocal. It goes two ways in most cases. But limerence is an obsession. You can't stop thinking about it. You might neglect other parts of your life, whereas you can love someone but still live your life. And, yeah, limerence can bring about stress and other, you know, negative aspects, whereas love can involve communication and all that. So that's the main difference. I I agree with that. Um, My next question would be around it is when you've kind of, when you notice you're in that state, how can you kind of work out of like, because if I'm hyper-focused on something, for example, or when I speak to a friend that is experiencing limerence or I believe is experiencing limerence, it's very difficult to unfocus from that situation. How would you suggest they go about, like, would it just be therapy, I assume? Yeah, and therapy is always a great step for anyone listening that wants to, you know, unpack whatever's going on. It's really about becoming aware of it, which I think is tricky for people. So there's different stages of limerence. And look, this is what is believed. I don't know if they've done extensive studies on this or what. Uh, The research is exactly up to date. But the three stages they believe happen is infatuation. And this is where you're sort of addictive. You're thinking about it 24 hours a day. You get the heart palpitations. You may feel really drawn to this person. It's this uncontrollable desire for someone. And then the next stage is believed to be called crystallization. So while that infatuation is unlikely to to go away, the second stage is all about solidifying that idea. You start to believe that this person is going to solve all your problems. You decide that the person is flawless. You idealize them. You put them on a pedestal. And this can kind of look like splitting in borderline personality disorder where you put people on a pedestal and then you devalue them. And then the third stage is deterioration. So reality sneaks in. You start to realize you'll you'll never have that person or it's not going to work out. It has to go both ways. So the final stage of limerence is that disappointment in the person the, or the object. It's about letting them go and realizing nothing's going to happen. So I think if you can recognize limerence happening, also validate that this is sort of a cycle and it is going to come to an end. And the, the sooner you can realize and identify the reality that, hey, this person just may not be into you, this is negatively affecting your life, you can start to wean away from it or take steps to move away from that obsession. Would you say that you could sort of almost use the same approach we discussed before with the cold water sort of scenario where you'd slowly like, because, yeah, like slowly not stalking them that day or not check, because I notice it, I do notice a pattern with, I'm not going to say who they are, but like a friend um, where checking is a massive, um, like they can't Mm. stop doing the checking habit of checking their socials or checking where they are or checking what they're doing or checking if they've replied. Like, and so would, could you use that same cold water method of like, okay, today I'm going to be okay with like not checking my phone and just checking where they're at today or not stalking their profile together. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, relationships and, when it's like a breakup, when you break up with someone, the part of your brain that gives you dopamine and oxytocin and all that good stuff, it's going through withdrawals. Mm. Now, the reason people get that hit or get that need met when they go through a breakup is they stalk the socials or what's he doing or where's his Snapchat or where's her Snapchat. And 
momentarily it's like you're giving your brain cocaine or you're giving it some dopamine so like ah oh, i checked i scratched the itch it's like an ocd compulsion yeah. and exactly what you said you have to withdrawal you have to go through the limerence withdrawal symptoms of not checking their socials sit with that discomfort sit with that pain sit with that but over time it's going to get easier so yes that's the first thing the second thing is building a loving relationship with yourself so a lot of people believe or it's thought to be that underneath limerence is the fear of being with yourself and making a good enough loving relationship with yourself someone who has you know a strong self-concept really knows who they are knows their values knows their worth aren't necessarily going to be too worried if someone doesn't reciprocate their feelings sure it hurts but meh, there's plenty more fish in the sea you know so it could be about how do i build a loving relationship with myself how do i create a secure attachment within myself because this feeds into attachment styles as well yeah like you might have an anxious attachment and this might be meeting that need so it's about building your secure attachment within yourself i don't have any other questions really but thank you so much for going through that oh my god and for just sitting with us and explaining everything yeah it was just so good you're so informative and you're so full of life like for someone that's working in such a clinical kind of field like you're full of life and energy like you being on social media is probably the best person to be on social media because you're explaining things in a way that's so digestible it's really really oh good. my god yeah thank you so much and i think honestly social media is what gives me that balance it allows me to be creative and expressive and just yeah help people in a different capacity so i really love it and i'm very grateful and i'm grateful for anyone who's listened to this episode thank you so much don't hesitate to reach out and ask any questions and if you are struggling with your relationship with food make sure uh, you can download my free binge tracker you can grab my book use the code mindfood20 if you want a discount Mm. and get in touch i just want to end on a light question now something hopefully easy for you to answer but if you had to pick one or two songs that you have an emotional connection with and Mm. why what would they be i thought about this I think one that comes to mind immediately, I was out with my friends the other night and we were all just dancing, having the best time. And this song just always comes out when you're out. And it's Whitney Houston. Oh, I want to dance with somebody. Mm, What a song. I want to feel the heat with with somebody. somebody. Yeah. (laughs) It is such a, it really just fulfills your insides. It does. Yeah. I don't know what it is. And I think. It always comes up when you're dancing, like, yeah, I just want to dance with somebody. And it's been around for a long time. So I feel there's been so many different stages of my life where that song has come up and different. Yes. Like, you know, when you're young and in the club and you're like, yeah, I just really want to meet that person. And then you hear it when you've met that person and you're like, yeah, did it, Whitney. Um, (laughs) That's so true. (laughs) So that was one that came to mind. And then this being a completely different stage and hearing that song and just being like, life is good. Mm, I love that. That's I so really beautiful. Like that life is good. Yeah. You're like living life in Bali right now. I know. Basically TikTok famous. Look at you. <laughs> uh, I'm very blessed. I feel very lucky and grateful to be here. I love that for you. Mm. And did you have yeah. one more song to tell us or was that it for Ooh, one more song. Uh, <laughs> this is so not what people are going to expect. I'm excited. I think it's – wait. It's give me everything tonight. 
um, Give me with people, right? Neo, Afrojack, and Pitbull. Yeah. Yes, because Pitbull's in every song. I love that. But I, I love just, Pitbull. Because we may not get tomorrow. Let's do it tonight. What they say, what games they play. I actually danced to that the other night at my friend's um, baby's christening. And I we always play that song because she's like obsessed with people. But um, that really does hit differently. It does. That's a great song. It, it hits differently in all contexts. It hits differently when you're at a wedding. It mm. hits differently when you're out. It hits differently when you're just putting your makeup on but it's so true it's like give me everything because we may not get tomorrow let's do it tonight i love that, that what the- yeah, yeah. You're, you're, good. <laughs> you're doing great you're doing great look i think there is reference to alcohol in there and other things but i'm gonna create my nah, own meaning and it's about yeah we may not get tomorrow so make the best of your life now and enjoy it i love that that's all that's that matters. Perfect. It's true. Like that's that, the basis of life is just like just enjoy and live life right now. We don't know how long we're going to be on this world. So true. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, love that. This has been one of the best interviews I've had. Thank you. So <gasps> really, much. I've been like stressing out in my usual fashion of rejection <laughs> dysphoria, but like <laughs> <laughs> it means so much to no, us. No, not at all. I I think it was just very true and deep and unstructured which i like i think it's the same questions like what is adhd what are the symptoms and that's all important but i think we covered a whole trajectory of other subtopics and good practical techniques too that people can try i think so too i think the cold water scenario i feel like you've explained that that. in a way that it's like explaining to someone how to leave their comfort zone without just saying you're going to leave your comfort zone like yeah i know what does that mean yeah you actually explained it how do you do it yeah Yeah. Talk about feeling seen. Talk about me oversharing as per usual. You wouldn't be you without the oversharing, Elle. It's like we said in the episode, you wouldn't be who you are without being who you are. I agree. I actually was thinking about that a little bit more Mm -hmm. after we recorded that. And I was realizing that though, and this is for anyone else that's probably in a similar situation with me as me is and has a fair few different diagnoses, I noticed that the parts of me you can have there's so many other people i meet that have the same diagnosis as me or something similar yeah but we're still different yeah oh my god we've still got different values different strengths different belief systems and at the end of the day that's like what i'm focusing on it's like as a whole who am i and who do i want to be and i i think that has been really really helpful in like realizing that the disorders yes they are part of me and they're parts i love and and sometimes don't like about myself but it's the the part of me to my core that my values and who I choose to be that define who I am, I suppose, exactly. in my mind. So, yes, yeah, exactly. And Steph helped me realize that too a little bit more and more each time we spoke to – like each, each sentence she said really opened my mind. I know. I felt like I learned so much within a space of an hour. Mm, me too. I – to be honest, one thing I loved learning about in this whole interview was limerence me too me too such a fascinating topic i think it's really really cool like because i think a lot of people have had that kind of infatuation feeling with someone yeah and it's very hard to know why you're feeling so strongly why it's taking over so much of your life and why you can't control yourself sometimes and not understanding whether or not it's love and not understanding whether or not it's just like obsession to some extent yeah. or or just a crush yeah even. or just a crush yeah exactly and 
yeah, I think without me hearing what that was from her, like I can think back to so many times in my life where that oh my was God. that was the case. So many times, and I don't. I've looked into it a little bit more since then. I don't think that this is like if you're had that feeling for years and you're like, no, I have to be in love with someone because it's been years that I've been feeling mm. this way. That can also be. It doesn't just go away within. It like doesn't a just couple go weeks. away. Yeah, like I definitely really think if you're someone that kind of relates to that or you're thinking that. Um, that might be what you're going through right now really check it out and look into content about it because um it's really been very helpful for me to kind of give closure to past versions of myself i think most definitely it definitely um it has led me to think about myself as a teenager yeah and i definitely had those characteristics Mm. where i would just crush on someone so hard yeah and it was and it was consuming yeah all consuming yeah yeah so it's utter, and I think back and it's like, those were really hard to get out of. Very difficult. It felt like, and I think because the emotions are so high and low, yeah. it, it traps you in that state. For sure. Both, in, at least in my opinion. I always found that like we, me and my, one of my other friends, we would always talk about how we had crushes that like no one else could relate to sometimes. Yeah. Like, and it was so, in, there was so much intensity. And now other friends were like, oh, I don't, like I have crushes on people, but it's not like that. Oh, yeah. And so for years, we were like, we just feel love in a, such a different intense way than everyone else. But to probably, to some extent, it was probably just limerence. Um, so interesting. Yeah. It's like disheartening yet very, very cl- like closure giving at yeah. the same time. I think with everything, when it comes to, mental health or things that you learn about yourself in that way it's all like two ends of a stick yeah does that make sense two ends of a stick I, double-edged maybe... sword yeah is that the same sword yeah that probably is what i'm trying to say i hope what i'm saying is right. no i think you're right double-edged sword is a saying that people say it. <laughs> all right well guys please make sure to check out steph's socials she's excellent we highly highly uh, recommends her content yeah and i'm not sure if she's taking clients or anything on at the moment i'm sure she's like packed with yeah. her actual work i'm keen yeah me too <laughs> like i'm like oh that i've never felt that related to or understood so cl- clearly by yeah. and i've seen a lot of psychologists it just makes me so happy that there's people out there that are sharing their information and their knowledge with the world in a, such a digestible way it's really yeah, important i agree um and it's people like her that are making a difference in mental health around the world most definitely Steph, we love you. We love you so we much. We love you so much. We cannot wait to meet you one day. Oh my gosh, cannot wait. Mm. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow all of our socials and to follow the podcast on any podcast platform that you enjoy. Yes, and if you like what you're listening to, please rate us a five out of five. It helps us out. Oh, does it help? It does help. It, it does, does help, help a lot, yes. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.